Hey everyone, uh, this is Pete Heiniger, and this is my wife, Shara Heiniger, and this is Stages Podcast. This is our uh, fourth episode of season one, and we just got done and wrapped up a series on communication, and we're going to kind of take a different direction um, today. We're going to look at some things that you've been seeing. Um, you've watched a couple interviews, and we're going to talk about um, an author and a professor and and somebody that, that we really find a lot in common with uh, by the name of Kate Bowler. And so um, before we jump in, I just want to remind everyone, the Stages podcast is, um, is really for the purpose of changing the conversation and the stigma around cancer. Um, because there's a lot of different things, as you see just in this um, podcast, you're going to see there's a lot of things that you face as first, um, as, as caregivers, and as cancer fighters. And so we want to give both perspectives um, all the time, not just the cancer fighter, but also the caregiver who doesn't only just come alongside you in the fight, but also has a different fight of their own. And um, it's a it's a different challenge than I face. And so we want to have both of those perspectives. So, hey, let's just jump right in. Shara, you um, found Kate Bowler, you listened to interviews, you've seen podcasts, and now you have her book, no cure for being human. And so, um, yeah, tell me about it and, and, um, pick my brain. <laughs> <laughs> so she has, um, stage four colon cancer and she had lesions in her liver, um, as well. So in addition to the things we talk about today, she has that in common with you. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first thing I wanted to, uh, the first part I wanted to read is, um, She's in the hospital. She's already received the diagnosis, but she's back in the hospital and it's overnight. And um, someone comes in, you know, at um, three in the morning yeah. and yeah. what's, your, what's your, let's take your vitals. What's your birth date? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's the scenario. And she's speaking with a young doctor and I'll just pick it up right here. She says, um, flustered. I tried to start again. The day before yesterday, a doctor's assistant called me on the phone at work to tell me that I had stage four cancer, but I don't know what those terms mean, except that it sounds like I am a spaghetti bowl of cancer. People keep saying lesions. I haven't had a chance to Google it. What are lesions exactly? <laughs> tumors. We're talking about tumors. Yeah, that brings back all kinds of, of memories. Um you know, on my cancer journey, just going in and it seemed like every time I would go in in 2019 and 2020 <laughs> that they would just find some, I'd go in for one thing and they'd find something else. And so I remember when, you know, we went in and, and um, for a totally different thing, I was getting a burning sensation in my, my uh, chest and it was due to some clotting things that were going on. But they scanned me, of course, and when they scanned me, they found the lesions on the liver. And of course, you don't have any idea unless you've been around the medical community or had somebody who's, you know, fought through cancer or something or familiar with it. You don't have any idea what are lesions on the liver. I mean, lesions sound like an abrasion or, or something like that. So you're just like, well, how did I get lesions on on the liver? You know, and you know, too much craft beer or <laughs> something like that what is, what is the, what is this from? And then, you know, then they finally go, oh, those are tumors. Mm -hmm. So um, that kind of begins your, your journey of, okay, what, what am I in store for and everything? And I think that begins the whole, from the medical community standpoint, trying to figure out 
what are those lesions from? Are they actual liver cancer or are they, where's the source? So what's the source cancer? Yeah. So very <laughs> words that just bring back, bring all kinds of things back to me as she went through them. I mean, just the uncertainty and everything. So, yeah. Then she has an episode where she's in the gift shop of the hospital mm -hmm. and she um, sort of berates um, a poor teenager worker and the manager about uh, the kind of books that are in the hospital gift shop and their prosperity gospel books. And then she says, the American admiration for bootstrappers and optimists became a capital paradise, capitalist paradise. Everyone is now a televangelist of the gospel of good, better, best. Harness your mind to change your circumstances. The salvation of health and wealth and happiness is only a decision away. Will you let, will you finally let it save you? But I cannot outwork or outpace or outpray my cancer. I can't dispel it with a can-do attitude. Yeah. This is something we've written a little bit about, we've talked about, but again, I feel exactly, you know, the same way as, as she does. We have... Um, you know, I think we have very well known, like like she mentions in there, I think Joel Osteen and stuff like that, who are very, you know, well-known prosperity gospel um, people. But I think that's kind of crept into our everyday language just in the church. We have a lot of this whole thing of like, I can just focus my mind a certain way if I can, you know, go through the right system, the right some, you know, system of things to do in my head, then I should just be able to cruise through this. And to any degree in which um, I am not cruising through it or, or, or whatnot, then I'm actually, um, you know, I'm struggling with faith or I've got to, you know, I got to improve, you know, a, a certain way that I approach, approach life. But the truth is, is that like, it's a denial of being human, right? I mean, like it is okay for you to face cancer and to be depressed. It is okay for you to face cancer and to, to have like a really hard mental health, you know, issue. It's, it's, it's to be expected. It's human. It's okay for you to be sad. It's okay for you to be angry. It's okay for you to be questioning God and asking, you know, why, why, what, what does God want from me? Like, these are things that are just human responses to something that is very tragic. That's coming to your life. Like I might die. I don't know how much longer I have to live on this earth. And, and so you almost feel forced by the books and by the language. And then I think the thing is, is that a lot of people who did haven't gone through cancer, haven't gone through like a life-threatening um, disease or put, but read these books all the time. Um, it kind of creeps in and that starts to form these cliches that come, that come at you and, you know, like just pull it through. You got to, you know, it almost feels like rub some scripture on it and you're going to be okay. And, and that's just, um, very, very disheartening to somebody who's in a long battle and a long fight and a long journey, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's almost like you have to, you know, have to keep this positivity and you can't be real and you can't admit what you're going through. And that's, you know, very dehumanizing. So she says here, there are two versions of this belief prevalent in America each drawn from a different well of scripture, tradition, and experience. In the first, more therapeutic account, God has a plan to make us happy. 
Influenced by the prosperity gospel in our self-help age, this version preaches that divine forces are participating in a loving conspiracy to keep us on an upward chosen trajectory. God is nudging us towards careers, partners, and dreams with which further are in immediate and ultimate goal. In the second, more deterministic account, God has a plan for our betterment, but not necessarily our happiness. Before the foundations of the earth, God ordained our lives and directed our steps, and everything that may seem accidental or incidental, good or bad, will someday be revealed to, a, to be part of God's best hopes for us. But in the meantime, we will have to trust that the plan is good, regardless of how it appears. We suffer. We are heartbroken. We lose more than we can afford. I have met countless people suffering who find this belief in God's plan to be deeply comforting. In this moral universe, God allows our sorrows to instruct us before drawing us into heaven with no tears. Yeah, I'm very familiar with with both approaches, right? We've talked a little bit about the kind of self-help, will yourself um, deal that, you know, but I think the second one, the the determinist view is, is something that's very, very common because it just kind of puts everything into god's hands and and then you know it's just part of this big huge plan of course that's not eked out in scripture at all um if you read the scriptures there's several times where god wanted to be done god god you know says in 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 the bible the old testament like he he regrets having created humans um in some places so there's this idea that god is never caught off guard he's not like surprised by humanity and what we do, but there's also the side of, and, and, and he can have a plan to accomplish his will in something, right? So he can accomplish the will. He wants to offer us forgiveness. He wants to offer us salvation. He's going to do whatever it takes to get there. And so you can see his will at work, you know, kind of working with us as free will beings. But, but I think, you know, to then ascribe that there's God's will in sort of, you know, every single thing that ever happened, I think all you have to do is find some point in history where you could define, in, you know, a story that is absolutely pure evil. Somebody did something that, like, you know, 99% of the population would be, oh, that's terrible, that's evil, that's pure evil. And then try to try to say that was God's will. <laughs> And somehow like, oh, he needed, you know, this, oh, you know, the, the Jewish people in Auschwitz to go and get gassed in the chamber. And somehow that was going to, you know, create some good. Um, no, that grieved God. God was completely against that. That's part of man's depravity and, and his fallenness. But that doesn't have anything to do with him. Can he take those situations, you know, and then, you know, help people recover from that? Yeah. Lots of people who survived Auschwitz went on to become huge voices in our society and have um, recovered from it, had, you know, did have a life after that. But that's, that's a far cry from saying that God somehow designed Hitler to rise up and do those type of things. And so, yeah, I totally reject, re- reject the determinist ter- view that, you know, there's just all these little meticulous control details that God has set, set in place. His will is wide, but he, he risked relationship with us by giving us free will and that means that 
we have the ability to choose to love him or to reject him and, and people actually choose to reject him and choose not to follow him. Then the last section of the book is about uh, when they finally get to leave and go home, leave the hospital and go home. I did not realize how much I wanted a blueprint for how to live until the day I was released from Duke University Hospital. I had pushed the doctors to let me go home, and I was elated to be leaving right up until the nurse pushed my wheelchair through the doors. When I saw Tobin and my dad, fear hit me with the first blast of fresh air. They hopped out of the car and looked at me appraisingly, trading notes with the nurse about how to stand me up and sit me down again without tearing the stitches in my abdomen. Dad, I said too quietly, Dad. Tobin was tossing my bags into the trunk and my dad was adjusting the front seat to give me more legroom. He glanced over. How will I know if I'm doing this right? I said in a low voice. Doing what right? He said. He buried his head buried under the seat. I am suddenly embarrassed by the answer. Live. I'm not sure I'm, I know how to do that anymore. Yeah, that's, that's probably the most relatable thing that, that um, she says. You know, here she's having a conversation with her dad, with her husband, sitting there listening, and she is put in that position of, you know, just how do I know that how to make it through here? Right. You know, it's kind of the thing that we talked about. I remember being at an event. I don't remember. I just remember it was in California, you know, in kind of the time period, but I remember even the speaker's name, but I remember that his wife was suffering um, cancer and had terminal cancer. And he was talking about how he encouraged her to learn how to die well. And it sounds bad. It sounds like, wow, that's heartless. But what he meant was, is that there's some way, if there's some way that we can show the world and the people around us that I can live with hope, um, that is just a beautiful thing because a lot of people don't have hope. And I can, I can say that I'm sure Kate has seen it, I've seen it, but when I'm in hospitals and I'm at the radiation, you know, I see people who are at their worst, they're at their wit's end. And that's not any fault of their own, but they don't, they're not walking with hope. They're angry. I've seen lots of angry people, very disgusted, angry. We were in um, one waiting room and we thought the guy was going to come to fisticuffs with the front, the front desk person. It was just, um, you know, it's just a place of frustration and really without hope. When people are without hope, they just become angry at their circumstances and stuff. So I really appreciated what that speaker had to say, because I think that's one of the things that, that has impacted me is, you know, there's a lot of choices we get in, in life, but then how do I choose to take this setback or, or this potential um, threat of my life and, and live in a way that demonstrates hope, right? And I think the first thing that we learn is that we can't do it alone. I think Kate's going to probably talk about that is that You've got to get, you know, I have to have a great caregiver and share. I've got to have friends and, and people that are around me that, that help me. But I mean, these things are are so important because they help remind me, right? I think one of the things that, that we struggle with with our humanity is that when we think about Jesus and um, his presence, sometimes we lose sight of it because of the circumstances. It's a 
terrible week of radiation. I just am not feeling it. I don't. So in, in a way, if you can run with me with this illustration, Jesus becomes blurry to me. The, the Jesus that maybe in a great week, I was, you know, just completely, you know, had my strong belief and it felt like he was part of my life and he was doing that in a week of hardship, it starts to become blurry and I start to have questions and I can start to, to waver. But when caregivers come in and when, when friends come in and when I get encouraged and when I see people and they make comments and, and things, it's, it's such a hope-giving moment because in a sense, they're like a visible, tangible representation of Jesus in my life. It's like they're here because Jesus brought them into my life, right? And so I look at all of those good things that he's given me and I can see um, his hand in there, right? So he's he's actually encouraging me through their actions and through their consistent love and through their, you know, tough talks or listening to me or however way they're showing up for me that week. Right. And I think that's, that's one of the hardest um, challenges. What about you from a caregiver's perspective? Like these things aren't just true about me, but like when you see like, how do we live when you're, you know, you're facing um, the challenge of being a caregiver, but working full time and doing all these things. And then watching me go through a rough week like this week and stuff like that. How does that affect you? Uh, it's a lot. It's just the, the roller coaster of emotions. I say that a lot. Um, but I also um, try to give myself the um, time and space to deal with those emotions instead of stuffing them. Cause that's sort of like my MO as well as my, uh, you know, what I was around growing up. So I do a lot of um, journaling, um, angry running <laughs> or angry walking, <laughs> different things like that to deal with my emotions. And that's because of the fact that I know that those are emotions are from God and, you know, he's helping me deal with all those emotions and he can take whatever I give him emotion wise. But at the same time, I don't want the um, my overflow of in not dealing with my emotions to negatively impact others. So that's one of the things I'm working on a lot is um, just trying to be mindful of my emotions and deal with them at the time so that um, I can be more helpful, more encouraging in the moment, but also real. Yeah. <laughs> And it's hard. I, I always want to say something is that sometimes, you know, we reduce, you know, you, you ask the question, how can we come alongside somebody that's fighting with cancer? I've got a good friend or I've got a loved one or I've got how do I come alongside someone and really, truly be an encouragement to that family? Um, and I think one of the things that is true is that I think you have to prepare yourself because it's not easy. I think we want to make it like, oh, I have the perfect word or I can come over. And this is great. And some those those experiences are true. People bring over a meal or they show up and you have fun. And, and those, I mean, those are definitely things that happen. But you can all of a sudden, if you hang out with somebody, you really walk out that journey with them on a weekly basis. You know, cancer fighters, when they're going through a tough week, they're and they're trying to be honest with you um, and you're asking how they're doing, it can sound like they're just negative. 
right? It can sound like, you know, like, because, you know, I, I can either answer your question dishonestly and just say, I'm, I'm fine. I got it. You know? And, um, and sometimes we as cancer fighters are always trying to read that in people. (laughs) We're trying to see like, you know, is this, is this someone who really wants to know how I'm doing? Or are they just, you know, kind of that's their MO as they show up and they say, Hey, how's it going? Or how are you doing? Are you doing okay? And so you have to kind of change your answer, so to speak, on how you answer, you know, you might say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm powering through or something like that. And um, in other times you might be able to be, you know, a little bit more um, open, but you're always worried about being too negative. Right. And I think that's one of the things that if you are in for the long haul, you've got to be able, that's kind of part of the equation because the reality is they didn't just go into a hospital, have an operation. Now everything's gone. Right. This is a a weekly, daily, you know, up and down battle. And if they're in a good week physically, um, they're probably battling something mentally because physically you kind of kind of takes your mind off of everything. All you can think about is like the pain that you're in. Then, the you know, if you start to feel better, then you're still consumed with the fact that like my life expectancy is uncertain. I might pass away you know there's all these things and then what does that look like for my wife or my kids or or different things like that so it's it's a it's a challenge to walk the journey and so that's one of the things we want to be open and honest with is that it's a really big deal it is really really truly something that that is um one of the greatest ways in which you could 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 serve a friend and loved ones and a family is to come alongside them but we also want to say like we're not easy. <laughs> it's, it's hard, right? Because it is just, you know, Kate is pouring out like I, you know, in, in her writings, I don't know how to live. I don't know how to do that. I don't, how do I show people when I don't, I feel like I'm inadequate and I feel like I'm going to, and that question in and of itself is back to that dehumanizing thing, right? It's we, she wants to put on the game face and you know, we're going to go out and, and fight. And she does fight, I'm sure. But, but the other side is that some weeks that fight looks like sadness and depression and fear and other things because she's, she's human. And I think that's the, the thing too, is that we have to realize the humanity of the people that we're working with. And that isn't a slack on their character. Um, sometimes our expectations are formed by those books. Sometimes they're formed by the fact that we just want to have some cookie cutter, wonderful, bright, shiny answer um, for something that's really difficult. Right. And, you know, it would make everyone feel better if, if, you know, if this cancer fighter and this caregiver could just be super happy. And, and <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, at least from my experience, that if they put on happiness all the time, that means that they're stowing away and compartmentalizing all the things because there's still fear. They're still scared. They're still depressed. They're just not showing it to anyone. And that's worse, right? That's, that's a terrible place to be because you really, really do feel all alone. Right. So, Hey, we want to continue talking about that. We're going to, we're going to look at a few more things that Kate um, talked about, but I just love the similarities. She's got the same uh, cancer as I do got the same lesions thing um, that, that I did and went through a lot of those firsts and then is really struggling with kind of 
the culture's response to, you know, like, a, you know, books and self-help and everything. And, and so we find a lot in common, like with, with her mm-hmm. and what, what she's saying. And, and so, um, again, we want you to, you know, we want you to be informed because I think this is an important conversation or stages wouldn't exist. We really want to change the conversation because we want you to think about like, where did you get your approach? Was it from something that you see um, as an example in, in scripture? Do you feel like it's the best thing or, or did you get it from someone? And maybe you're trying to force positivity and some things into a place <clears throat> which really is just trying to ask, it's dehumanizing the person and telling them not to be human when their suffering is okay. It's okay to go through and express and talk about. So we love you. Um, we're, um, we're excited about, um, getting more into this conversation because some of the stuff we're going to get into next is going to go into more, you know, critical ways in which that kind of roosts itself in, in our lives. But I think the takeaway that we wanted um, to have for you is that you, you are a huge reason why people have hope. So don't diminish your ability to bring hope to people's lives when you come alongside them, when you fight, if you're a cancer fighter, you are a huge tool for hope. When you show hope, when you show resilience, when you're raw, when you say I'm broken, like I, I just can't go do it this week. I am, I'm scared. When you cry, when you express yourself as a human being, all those things that are valid, um, that's still bringing hope to other people. They're watching you and going, oh, this, t- this fight is hard. And yet they're, they're still, they're, they're putting one foot in front of the other as best they can. And then you, you get to watch this beauty of, of combining those two things, right? The cancer fighter and all the people that are supporting them. And that's how you make it through life. And really that's a picture of the church. It's really a picture of what God intended the church to be, that we're all in it together. And when someone needs help, we all rush to help them. Right. So we love you and we hope you have a good week. All right. Mm -hmm.